Here today on Graceful Truth, Pastor Steve Converse begins a brand new series, Philippians chapter four, seven steps to spiritual stability. Stand firm or stand fast in the Lord. That's a, that's a command, that's not an option, that's an imperative command. And it's actually used in military circles, culturally. It was used in a way, kind of the, the idea of stand your ground, stand your post in the midst of the battle. Don't you dare retreat, that's the idea. It means to hold your position while you're under attack. It means what Paul was saying in Ephesians 6, in the middle of the battle, you've got your armor on and you've, you've, you've done everything to stand. That's the idea. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand firmly no matter what comes. How stable in Christ are you? I'm sure if you're like most, we long to be a bit more stable than we really are. Welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our time today is going to take us to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1 as we begin our series, Seven Steps to Spiritual Stability. We'll focus the presence of instability in today's church as well as the Philippian church, giving us an idea of where we're probably at so we better understand where we need to be. And please join us for today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. Today we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Here in verse 1, he begins kind of a, uh, a different set of commands, really. A different set of instructions, of principles. He's really concerned about the Philippians the church there, and he's concerned about their, their stability in their faith. And there's a lot of things that we're going to look at in the coming weeks in this last chapter of Philippians that are very common to us. We've probably memorized verses out of here, and we've probably um, you know, studied that uh, portion of text. It talks about prayer, it talks about joy, it talks about a lot of different things, and we're probably very familiar with this portion of Scripture. But a lot of times, when you're familiar with something, you fail to see the you know, the, the, the forest through the, the, the trees kind of a thing. And it's, it's kind of an important thing that we stop and we kind of take some time as we, we work through this section of Scripture together. And the, the first section here is verses 1 through 9. And um, he's really, like I said, concerned about their, their spiritual stability. And so he wants to share some principles with them to help them um, grow in that area of their life. And so he, he, he's viewing here, their, their stability spiritually, and he wants to share with us some, some scriptures with the Philippians about their, their own walk with the Lord. It's kind of a uh, fair statement, I think, to say that as you look around our nation, there's a lot of instability in churches. There's a lot of uh, churches that are unstable from the leadership on down. They're unstable in the sense, what I mean by that is, not that they're failing, <laughs> you know, not, I mean, a lot of these churches could be full. But it seems that sometimes churches are unable to stand against the wiles of the devil, as the, the scripture explains it. And they, instead of standing against those wiles of the devil, as, as Bible, the Bible says, they're almost embracing them. Sometimes that's hard to understand, but we see it all around us. A lot of churches are uh, just wrought with worry and problems and anxiety. 
it seems that no matter who you talk to uh, in ministry, and you talk if you're talking about a church to them, um, more than likely the conversation leads to some situation they're dealing with in their church that's not a good situation. There's always a problem. They're always trying to fix something. Um, and so the church in general, a lot of times, can be very unstable because it's not built on the proper foundations that God lays down for us in his word. I think a lot of times we, we just assume that everything's okay. And we, we don't really find this surprising, at least I don't, because scripture tells us that the church will be under attack. And when you're under attack, a lot of times that causes instability. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have what? tribulation. You will have it. It's not a question mark. He said there will be days when people will actually persecute you, take your life, do to you what they did to me. They will take you before the courts, they'll throw you in prison, and he tells them expect that. That's just, it's going to happen, and it does happen in certain parts of the world, even today. There's a hostility in our world today that's, that's really empowered by the devil, the Satan himself, against Christ, against Christians, against anything that the church stands for. Now, if you're willing to water everything down and just become like the world, well, then they don't have a problem with it. But even Jesus said that we have to be watchful and prayerful concerning these things. Um, he says, be on alert. Uh, he told Peter and Paul. He told us that the devil moves around like a roaring lion, seeking whom, it may, who, whom he may devour. And, uh, you know, if you stop and you think, even our flesh um, stalks our redeemed self a lot of times and drags us to places that we don't want to go, that we know it's wrong, and, and we end up in this situation, and we're going, how do we get here? So we're always under assault. There's always some form of, of uh, persecution going on. And, you know, persecution necessarily isn't just, you know, somebody breaking in the doors and take, putting you in handcuffs and putting you in prison. I think that a lot of times... There is a, a subtle persecution that goes on that's even sometimes more dangerous. And that's what we have in our country. There's kind of a, an underswelling of persecution against the church in a way that seems like, well, it's not that big of a deal. But it has effects. I think if you were living in a society where being a Christian would cost your life, well, you know, that's, that's pretty clear cut. But when you're in a society that just constantly kind of tries to grind away at the values and everything you stand for, after a while you begin to kind of become callous toward that. And you think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, they're the world, they're acting like the world, what do you expect? But it does have an, an effect on us as believers. And so some believers tend to kind of meet them halfway. They begin to compromise in their own walks. They begin to, um, you know, subtly, in ever so subtle ways, begin to compromise with the society that's around them, and all of a sudden, they find themselves closer to the world than they do to Christ. And that only happens in societies, it even happens in churches. We went to a church when we were away up at the kids um, visiting for Christmas. It was their Christmas Eve service. It seemed like a good church. Pretty big church, a lot of people and everything. So we get in there and we're ready to start the worship service and everything. And, and I understand it was kind of done in a fun way, but I'm thinking, you know, this is not what I wanted to hear when I went to a Christmas Eve service. But they, they, I still can't believe they did this. They got up and the, the worship leader said, well, there's a song that a lot of people sing this time of year or whatever, join in me. And he started singing, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And it's like, what is he doing? And everybody's just singing along. And I'm like, 
is this weird or what? I mean, he went through the whole song. They had it up on the screen and everything. It was just really odd. And I understand it was kind of for the kids, but even so, why would you want at that time of the year when you're supposed to be focusing on the Savior, the one that's born the gift to us, be focusing on a, on a you know, the Grinch that stole Christmas? And they used it in a, in a cute way a little later on in this little message, you know, how the world steals Christmas and that kind of stuff. But I just thought, boy, that's weird. But in, it's subtle ways like that that a lot of times we don't realize the impact that all this stuff is having on us and on the church. There was a Russian pastor once who was asked, how is it to pastor a church? Is it difficult in Russia for you to pastor a church? And his, his response was, you know what, in Russia it's very easy because you know where everybody stands. You know, I mean, because they have, at any time somebody could come in and say, ah, you know what, you're following Christ. Uh, this was back when, you know, but even so, I mean, in some countries that's the way it is. Whereas here in America, you know, I mean, you can kind of have a hodgepodge of people together and it doesn't really matter where anybody stands. Matter of fact, he went on and he said, you know, what I don't understand is how in the world you can pastor a church in America where the compromises are so common and so subtle. See, that's the kind of persecution we face every day. And you know what? When we face that stuff, sometimes that can cause us bitterness. That can cause us wanting to retaliate in different, in different ways. And, and uh, we, we try to focus on all these problems. And Paul was concerned for the Philippian church. He didn't want them to grow unstable. And it's in the middle of a battle is when you need to have some stability. You need to have some ground to stand on. Um, you don't want to be in the middle of a, a firefight with, you know, you're fuddling around with your weapon trying to get it loaded. That's not the time to do that. You want to be stable in your thought and your actions, and you want to, you know, execute what you're told to do. Well, it's the same way in the Christian life. But you know what? It's a battle to stay in a stable level area in our own walks. It's just hard. It's, it's not something that comes easy. It's not something that you don't have to work at. And that's really what Paul has here in mind as he talks about this church. Now, you know, he doesn't have any illusions about the Philippian church. They were a great church and he loved them, but he also had some hard things to say to them. He wanted them to know that he loved them and he told, tells them that over and over and over again. He has a, a passion to be with them. When he's not with them, he misses them. Um, you know, and that's, that's true. That's how the body of Christ should be. Um, that's why, you know, when, when we're here on a Sunday morning and you're not, you are missed. You know, you just are. That's just the way it is. Um, and and it's, it's part of our fellowship. It's part of our time together. And see, in their church, they, they had pretty much a lot of things going on. But in certain areas, he tells them that they have to have the mind of Christ. Um, so that's assuming they didn't. They knew that we knew that there's conflict in the church because he goes on here in, in verses 2 and 3 in, in chapter 4, and he talks about these two women who apparently were quarreling. And they couldn't uh, seem to agree on a lot of things. And in verse 3, he has to ask somebody to fix it, if you notice. He says, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women. So obviously the leadership in the church wasn't doing their job. And so there was a lot of instability here in this church, in this congregation. And what Paul was concerned about was that, you know what, some of the people weren't trusting God. Some of the people weren't being thankful. Um, you know, they were just playing church. Just like every other church plays church. And there's a whole bunch of different levels of stability or instability in our Christian walks that we can look at. But Jesus was concerned about the stability of the church. He really was. 
Um, you think about when he restored Peter at last at the John's Gospel there in the final chapter where Jesus restores Peter back to function. And as Peter begins immediately then to really manifest another weakness, he basically says, stop right there and do what I tell you. He says, follow me and it will cost you your life. Be strong, he tells him. And that's really the intent of his words. That's what he wants us to hear. Uh, Jesus is concerned about the strength of his disciples, about the stability of his, his disciples. He talks about trials that they'll face and, and different things. And, and that's one of the things that we need to remember, that this Christian life that we live is not just a bowl of cherries. Um, in, in 2 Peter 2.14, he wrote about false teachers, about agents of Satan who were always attempting to, and here's his phrase, entice unstable souls. In other words, for every thing you learn, maybe even here this morning, about God and you're edified in your spirit, there's probably a hundred things during the week out there in the world that are going to whittle away, kind of whittle away at that, that truth. And, and so it's very important that we realize that, you know, even though we come here and we feel stable and we feel strong here spiritually, how do we feel throughout the week? How do we feel on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday? You know, hopefully you're staying in the Word. Hopefully you're growing in your walk with Christ. Because we have to be vigilant about that. In, in 2 Peter 3.16, he says, untaught and unstable people. And he calls them, and they will distorted the writing of Paul and their own destruction. You know, that happens today. There's people that are taking the Word of God and, and transform. They're trying to twist it. They're trying to, to, to make it something that, say something that it doesn't say just for their own benefit happens all the time. They're distorting scripture. They're misrepresenting what God says. James warned about the same thing. He warned about being spiritually unstable, being double-minded. Uh, people who, you know, waver about in different things are all over the map. They don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't know which way is right. They can't make any decisions. They don't have any discernment. They're constantly in their, in their walk kind of going back and forth, vacillating between doubt and faith. Feel strong one day, the next day they're just wiped out. They're not single-minded. They're not fixed on righteous truth. They're not focused on the character of God um, and his attributes and how to better understand him. And it's important that we realize that because what was going on there very much is what goes on in our lives every day. And it's not just in the New Testament. There's people spoken of in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Reuben, in, in Genesis 49th chapter, his oldest son, uh, there, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben. Let me just read. I'm just going to read. I'm not going to turn to it myself. I just wrote it down here in my, my notes. Here's what he says to Reuben. Reuben, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn by might and the beginning of my strength, preeminently in dignity and preeminent in power. And you think, boy, this guy's really something, this son Reuben. Well, look at what he says. He goes on. And then he says this. Unstable as water, <laughs> you shall not have the preeminence. Sad. What disqualified this, this boy? What disqualified Reuben, this son? What made him as unstable as water? Well, you read about it in, in Genesis 35, 22. He basically committed fornication with a, uh, one of his father's concubines in his father's bed. So his father said, you're, you're unstable. Um, but to say you're unstable is water. I mean, that's, that's pretty unstable. And, and spiritual instability kind of manifests itself in a lot of different ways. 
And that's what we want to kind of look at, how we can guard against that, how we can make sure that we don't fall into that. And that's what Paul has in mind here. Look at the very first verse, Philippians chapter 1. And you notice there, he says, therefore. Now, we know that whenever you see a therefore, you go back and you see why it's therefore. And so he's basically saying, everything I've taught you up to this point in chapter 3, and you can go back and review your own notes on that. We're not going to go through all that. But everything still holds true. And what he's saying is, on those principles that I taught, that you need to press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Becoming more like Christ, okay? Becoming more like Christ in our practice and and in the way we live and everything. And as that kind of fleshes itself out, and our citizenship is in heaven and all that, and he says, verse 1 there, therefore, and then he says, my beloved and long-for brethren. You know, you can can kind of say, boy, he's going to hammer him here in a second, I bet. You know, do you ever have a conversation with somebody and they, hey, how you doing? You know, boy, you're just such a nice guy. And you know it's coming. Something's coming. But, you know, sorry, but we don't need you here anymore. Here's your pink slip or whatever. You know, they lather it on real thick and then they, you know, kick you right out. Well, you know, that happens in life. But this wasn't what Paul was doing here. He was being sincere. He calls him my beloved. He was really speaking from a, a pastor's heart. And he says, long for brethren. Remember when earlier on in the book, he says, you know what? You know, I'm kind of between the two. I don't know if I should go with the Lord or stay here with you. Well, it might be better, better for you to, if I stay here, but then again, I could be with the Lord. I mean, that's how much he loved these people. And, you know, that's the kind of love that the church should have for one another. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we're thinking, hey, the Lord could come back. Praise God. Get out of here. It's, you know, I mean, you know, that's our attitude. But sometimes, maybe we need to stop and say, hey, is, is, is my love really the love that Christ had for his church, for one another? Could we really say, well, God, you know, I'd want to go with you, but, you know, if, if, if I went with you, I, I couldn't spend Sunday mornings here with these people or Wednesdays or whenever. Would that really be an honest assessment of our hearts? So he, he calls them his beloved. And then he says, longed for brethren. He wants them to know that they're missed. He wants them to know that, remember, he's writing here from a prison, so he's not with them. And he's wanting them to know that, boy, his, his joy is full when he's with them. And he wants them to understand that, you know, they need to, to uh, uh, stand fast, he says, in the Lord. And this is the command that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, and it kind of fleshes itself out in the following verses. And this isn't the first time. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 28, I think it's 28, he says the same thing to them, uh, 27 there. Um, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith, faith of the gospel. And so it's, it's, it's on his mind. He doesn't want them to, to slip up. He doesn't want them to lose their footing. And that's the idea here. But you know, if you have a little pen, circle that there at the end of verse 1. So stand fast or stand firm, your translation may say, in the Lord. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the Christian walk is all about. And that's kind of the dominating verb here in these next couple verses. He's saying, you know what? You need to stand firm in the Lord. And if you do that, you'll have spiritual stability. I mean, he understood what they were going through. You remember in in verse 28 of chapter 1, he said, don't be alarmed by your opponents. He understood they were under attack. In verse 29, he even said, it's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. They were suffering. In fact, it it was severe enough that in verse 30, he says that they were experiencing the same conflict that they had seen in him. 
And then in chapter 2, he, he kind of indicates that they're not all of the same mind. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he commands them to be of the same mind. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So obviously, there was some disagreement in the church, and there was some dissension going on. So they were falling not only under the, the, the persecution that was coming from the outside, but even the temptation that, that they faced with one another. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Well, why would he say that if they weren't complaining and disputing? <laughs> and he tells them in verse 15 to, you know, basically calls it a, uh, you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know, that's, that's where we live today. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. And so these words are very good for us to hear. They're encouraging. This isn't something new under the sun. Everything wasn't going as it should have been in the Philippian church, and Paul wanted to point that out, but he also, he pointed it out with a very loving heart. He needed, they needed to really kind of recharge their joy batteries, because in chapter 2, verse 18, he said, start rejoicing instead of fretting. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, they were encountering the enemies of the cross. We learned about the Judaizers and all those things. They called them dogs and evil workers and the false mutilation. I mean, this church was really going under, uh, coming under attack. And then you get to chapter 4 and you see this debate between these two women that were going on. And then you realize in verse 6 of chapter 4 that there's some anxiousness, there's some worrying going on. So they didn't have their act together. And so Paul was concerned. And, and so he says, you know what, based on what I've seen so far, I, I need to share some things with you. And that's what he says there in the, in the very first verse. He says, so stand firm or stand fast in the Lord. That's a, that's a command. That's not an option. That's an imperative command. And it's actually used in military circles, culturally. It was used in a way, kind of the, the idea of stand your ground, stand your post in the midst of the battle. Don't you dare retreat. That's the idea. It means to hold your position while you're under attack. It means what Paul was saying in Ephesians 6, in the middle of the battle, you've got your armor on and you've, you've, you've done everything to stand. That's the idea. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand firmly no matter what comes. You don't want to crumble under persecution. You don't want to compromise. You don't want to crumble when it comes time for your testing or, or complaining about it. You don't want to crumble under temptation and sin. You want to stand firm. That's what Paul is trying to point out to them. And if you stop and you think about it, that's really where Paul's heart is. None of us would like to see people crumble under temptation or crumble under persecution. And what Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't allow things from the world to come in and break up your cohesive relationship you have with each other. And so he, he commands them here very clearly that he wants them to stand firm. Stand firm. A.W. Tozer once said this, in a sermon he was preaching. He said, I've been assessing the church for a long time. My conclusion is basically that the church is politely bored with God. <laughs> kind of an interesting assessment. Politely bored with God. And he went on to say, he says, you expect me to entertain you. You expect me to do something that will attract your attention and titillate your emotions. Because frankly, if all I do is talk about God, you'll be bored. And he goes on to say, if one is bored with God, that's really a blasphemous attitude and probably leads to the kind of apathy 
that would make a command of God something more like a suggestion. See, that's what Paul doesn't want them to take. He doesn't want them to misunderstand that this is a command to stand firm. He wants them to understand very clearly that this is his desire and it's not an option. It comes from God. He says, therefore, you know, stand fast in the Lord. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-366. 9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.